Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Quick note about the foundation. We've embarked, we're starting to embark on our anxiety and depression treatment overview. So the goal is to create a low-cost resource for sufferers that attempts to outline every possible treatment for anxiety and depression and PTSD. So to help out with the effort or find out more, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And today, in that vein, we have uh, Bianca Rodriguez. She's in her personal story about anxiety and depression, and she's going to talk about her work as a holistic psychotherapist, the founder of what's called You Are Complete, and she's also a published author. So, Bianca, thank you for coming Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk about basically my favorite topics, anxiety, depression, personal transformation, how we can, how we can become the radiant people that we are, that we are, even when we forget when we're, when we're having a hard time. Yeah. Well, tell me a bit about your journey and uh, your past experiences, if you would. Absolutely. So, you know, I always say that you got to teach what you got to learn. So becoming a psychotherapist was very much a part of my journey in understanding the the challenges that I have experienced. And one of those is there's a type of trauma that, that a lot of people don't know actually is trauma because we talk a lot about physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, war, natural disasters. But another type of trauma is medical trauma. And medical trauma is basically when people have had some sort of a physical condition and illness in which they feel like their well-being is, you know, basically threatened and or they're going to die because the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the book that therapists and doctors use to diagnose different psychological disorders says in order to have a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, you have to have first 
experienced a trauma and a trauma is described as that where you feel like your well-being or your life is threatened or you witness that happening in someone else right like if you saw somebody shot or even if you heard about something brutal happening to someone especially a loved one especially children if they overhear these things that could actually also be considered trauma and medical trauma for me looked like at the age of three four years old i developed very severe asthma And for folks that have asthma or anybody who's ever struggled to breathe, I mean, the number one thing that's going on in your head is I'm going to die. So my first memories are of not being able to breathe and that I was going to die. And I didn't realize that I had experienced trauma until after I went to graduate school. So I went to graduate school, you know, in 2000, I don't know, two or three, graduated in 2005 and After I graduated, I started working with kids, underserved population, foster kids, so a lot of trauma, and I started to learn and take trainings about really working with trauma, and when I heard that definition of trauma, I was like, oh my God, I've been through trauma. I didn't have just one asthma attack either. I had many asthma attacks and was hospitalized a lot as a child, and I was like, oh my God, things make so much more sense because I had also struggled with anxiety pretty much my whole life. And so were you able to identify where the asthma attacks came from? Well, this is what's really interesting. So I'm, I'm pretty out there in this sort of spiritual mind body connection. And what's crazy is that my asthma developed when my parents divorced and I work with an incredible functional doctor who basically said that at three or four years old, I didn't understand. And I couldn't process the basically like, right. Separation of my parents. And, and so it manifested in physically in asthma. So I think that that is really interesting. A lot of folks that have lung issues have unresolved grief. A lot of the time, Chinese medicine sort of speaks to that being one of the, one of the ways that we process trauma, I mean, process loss. So that was kind of what happened there because it was pretty much right after they divorced that these asthma attacks started to, you know, started to kind of become really out of control where I hadn't had really a history of that prior. So uncovering past trauma sounds like it's critically important, but what's the process by which people can do that safely without mentally blowing themselves up or, I don't know, feeling like their whole life is a lie and just really getting so upset that they can't function? Yeah, Richard. Okay. That's a really great, great question. Okay. I believe that In order for us to really be integrated is the word I kind of like to use. And integration would look like you have a sense of calm, serenity, good relationships, sense of purpose in your life, right? In order to really be well, I do believe that we need to uncover the parts of ourselves that we are usually denying or suppressing. And one of the things that happens when we experience trauma is that our brain tries to protect us, usually by suppressing the trauma in some type of a way, which is why we do have to be very mindful when we start to process trauma. And so I think it's important to do that, but not so important that your mental health suffers. So I do a practice that's called EMDR. And it stands for eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. And it was developed by a woman named Dr. Francine Shapiro. And it's been used a lot with veterans. 
And now it's been around, I mean, I don't even know, 20 years maybe. So it's pretty new actually, but it's been used with lots of different populations. And I personally went through this treatment with my therapist. And then I was so blown away at the results that I now offer it. I got trained and offer it to clients. But one of the things that you do before you process any trauma with anybody is you make sure that a person is in a place of stability and is capable of managing their emotions. Now, if you've experienced trauma, you usually have some kind of anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder. A lot of the time there's substance abuse, which was, is also part of my story. And I can get into that more. So a person actually often has to go on quite a journey to learn how to manage their symptoms so that they can actually have the window of tolerance, we call it, to, to tolerate going back into reprocessing the traumatic memories that happened. But I don't do any of that type of work with a person unless they really have demonstrated the ability to regulate their emotions. Because, right, competence builds confidence. And that goes for everything in our lives. Competence. You learned how to drive a car. Had When you first got in a car, right, you weren't confident. But over years, you you gained the skill set. And the same thing is, is about managing our emotions. It's it's just a skill. It's a skill that people have to learn and most people are not really taught to do. So when a person starts to become competent and feel confident in their ability to manage their own emotions, then you're in a space where you can look at trauma, you can revisit trauma and go, this is horrible. And my anxiety is at, a, is at an eight on a scale of one to 10, but I know how to bring it back down to a three or four. So I can go or lower a two, right? So that I can go back to work so that I can, if you struggle with substance abuse and you've had a period of sobriety, so I cannot relapse. So I would say, you know, yes, I'm touting that. I think that if you really want to be fully functioning and healthy and the best you can be, if you've experienced trauma, it would be very beneficial to process that trauma, but not if it's going to, like you said, destroy you in some way. And if it is going to, then you ain't ready to process the trauma. And if you don't get there, how could could someone know this without being a therapist themselves? How could they know they're ready or not? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Honestly, I would say if you are struggling with any part of your mental health, go to a, go, go, no, go to a clinician, go to a, a licensed therapist and start doing the work and, and allow them as the expert to help assess, right? Cause that's part of my job is I can assess whether somebody is ready or is not ready, right? And that would be a part of the process. And the getting ready in and of itself is, is part of the healing and is incredibly helpful, right? Like just 
learning what trauma is and, and figuring out that I had even experienced trauma was like that in and of itself was therapeutic. So I would say, go to a clinician, build a relationship with them, bring your questions, bring your concerns. If they say, I think you're ready to experience, you know, to, to start working on this. And there's other types of work you can do, right? I mean, I do EMDR, people do hypnosis, people do somatic experiencing, you know, like it's going to really depend on your relationship with the clinician and what they, what kind of, you know, modalities. I just don't know. I, I just, you know, I've heard way too much that clinicians are dismissive and very few are functional. And it just, I don't know. I just don't know if that idea would would work. I don't know if uh, clinicians would want to just use what they know to help the person. Like, you know, they know three different modalities. That's what's in their basket to help people. You know, if, if someone says, all right, I'm ready to work on my trauma and stuff. If I was a clinician, I wouldn't, I, I don't know if I'd say, oh, go see, go see this person. Instead, I can't help you. Or I would just try to use what I know to help the person. Okay. So wait, are you saying that you've heard stories of people that want to work on their trauma, but they go to a clinician who's really not trained in in being able to help them do that? I don't know if they've said they wanted to work on it, but I've heard dozens and dozens and dozens of stories of people being dismissed by clinicians, regardless of their ability. Not only does the person, I guess, need to somehow know when they, I mean, they're in the thick of it, it's in their own head, if they're ready or not, but they'd have to go to the right clinician, I guess, that can help them, is willing to help them and won't be like, ah, that's fine. Okay. So basically, all right. So it sounds like you have folks that have gone, you know, people who have gone to therapy and the therapist, what, like, was just like, nah, you don't really have anything. Like, would they not, would they not see them? Would they like send them away or they would just, well, they would either, that thing's not know, a big deal. some, some would say, just get over it. Some would say, oh, okay, well I do this kind of therapy. I do CBT. So that's what we're going to do mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. and on. So it just seems like difficult for the person to identify, first of all, that they need the help and how, and then to find the right person to help them. How could they do mm-hmm. that? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. That is a great question. Okay. So like in any profession, right? There's people who I think are really great at their jobs and there's people who maybe are not as good at their jobs. And maybe there's people who are burnt out, you know, and whatever. So I think it's hard because it's almost like going to a doctor, right? It's like when I go to the doctor, cause I have whatever a weird pain or some kind of symptom, it's like, I don't know how everything works. So I have to kind of trust the doctor's opinion. And I think the same thing is with a clinician, but human beings are very, very smart and we all have an, in, have our intuition. And so I would say, first of all, I want, I want the people listening to this no, to know that you have a choice and that you have the power to say yes or no to any clinician that you might find, and that it is a process of kind of interviewing people and seeing, one, there's got to be an energetic match. There has to be a relationship match. If you meet someone and you're like, I don't even like, like, they remind me of this person, or like, ah, there's, I don't really like them, or something's off. It's like, that's not going to be a good therapist for you. The number one most important thing in a therapeutic relationship in therapy is the therapeutic relationship. And that has got to be based on trust. And that can take time. I have clients that I have really had to work on building trust with due to their own past and their nature of, of being guarded for a lot of, you know, for good reason, right? We develop the defenses we develop for a reason for like a year, like a like one year of weekly sessions to really see that somebody's kind of willing to let me in. And However long it takes you, that's 
That's however long it takes you. But to trust your instinct to ask questions, to know that the therapist might have the training and the experience, but that if something doesn't feel right, if you don't understand how something works, if you want to know why they're doing you know, the interventions that they're doing, really making sure that it's a collaborative process and that, you know, at any point you can, you know, get a new therapist, find somebody else. But I would always say, you know, if the person, the therapist seems open to having a conversation with you, which if they're a good therapist, they will, they will be able to talk about any of your concerns in a very open, non-defensive way so that they can figure out, if they can offer, you know, what's helpful to you. I refer people out all the time. I do 20 minute, which sometimes turn into hour long consults with people to make sure that it's the right match. And if it's not, you know, thankfully I have a great network of colleagues that I can refer people to, you know, there's definitely certain diagnoses I do not work with. They're very specialized. I don't know how to treat them. So, yeah, I mean, I think I would just say to, you know, look, if you're looking up a therapist and you want to work on trauma, read their website, look at their profile. Does it say they specialize in trauma? And there's uh, many different ways to treat trauma. How do they treat trauma? What's the philosophy behind it? Can they send you some information on it? I mean, I send everybody to the EMDR website and I'm like, read this, watch this. And I think asking always, what are the risks and what are the benefits of this treatment? I think is always helpful. It's like, if you're going to take a medication, you're like, what are the side effects? I would want to know. My consent form says you could sign up for therapy with me, but just know it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Cause I'm going to be asking you tough questions and to look at stuff and you're going to, that's going to suck, but it's for good reason. So I think having somebody who you feel you can trust and ask questions to, and has a reason can explain to you why they do what they do and how it's going to impact you positive and maybe, you know, hard, risky, you know, risks. There's always risks associated with any kind of treatment. I would say that would be helpful, but you're making a great point, which is it's hard to navigate. If I was to um, to watch you do EMDR therapy on someone or watch someone engage in it, what would I see? Oh, what, what you would basically see is, so EMDR uses something called bilateral stimulation. And that's just a fancy way to say that you activate the right and the left hemispheres of the brain. And the way that you do that is many different ways. You could literally just tap on your legs, left knee or like left thigh, right thigh, left, right, alternating tapping. I have these electric buzzies that when I used to see clients in person, I really haven't, haven't gone back into the office yet. There are these electric buzzies that they hold that a person would hold in their hands. Some people use eye movements, which could be done either with a, a light bar. There's like a bar with a light that goes back and forth, or the therapist can sit in front of you and just put their fingers to the right and to the left, which would make your eyes. That's why it's called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It was developed using eye movements, which is actually interesting because when you dream or you've seen somebody sleep, your eyes are moving. That's part of the reprocessing of activating the right and the left hemisphere of the brain, which we want to do because the right hemisphere of the brain stores memories that have not been processed. And those are usually your traumatic memories that at five years old, when you witnessed something or something happened to you, you didn't fully process that. And you absolutely didn't process it from your, I'm 45, right? Your 45 year old, 35 year old, 25 year old, 16 year old brain, which is much more adaptive and it has a lot more skills involved. So there would be some form of eye movements. Uh, I mean, of bilateral stimulation, either eyes, buzzies, 
tapping. And then the other thing that you see going on is the therapist would be asking the client to use an image that represents whatever the trauma is that we're going to revisit today. Usually you work on them very systematically. There's like kind of a whole bunch of sort of stuff you got to do to get somebody organized to do that type of work. And then you would ask them, what is their negative belief that they have about themselves based on the trauma? Because that's part of what happens. So a lot of mine, like my experience, um, my negative belief, and there's a list that you use with all the negative beliefs that a person could ever have is I can't handle it because I was a four-year-old in a hospital getting things done that were very terrifying. So one of my beliefs throughout my life has been, I can't handle this, which has obviously led to tremendous anxiety because I feel like, right, I can't handle traveling alone. I can't handle, I don't know, overdoing it. I can't handle all these different things. So basically what you're doing is you're actually changing somebody's belief system about themselves. And so you would have them bring up an image and and choose a belief that kind of matches that and notice what they're feeling in their body in order to get into the emotional part of it. And then the therapist would have the client just sit in silence. So it doesn't look like anything is going on while the bilateral stimulation is happening. And it looks like nothing is happening, but I will tell you, Richard, nothing short of a miracle is happening because what happens is the client's mind, once they sort of have the image and the statement, they let go and they just let their brain do whatever it's going to do. Kind of like just watching a movie of your brain and your brain is so smart that your brain completely begins to go back into the memory. It will often go back into into memories that are associated with this memory have a similar sort of feeling belief system quality to it, even if it's a completely different scenario. And although you may have to revisit those traumas, which is the painful part of it, the reliving of them, one, you're not really reliving it because you can never relive something that happened in the past. You're just remembering it. Although it can be dysregulating, that experience is very short. It gets, it's almost like watching some, watching a wave, a person starts to kind of amp up with the, with the emotion. And then there's a peak to it, which can be very powerful, but it dissipates literally over the course of minutes, which is what's so insane is that many of us will spend years suppressing traumas using so much psychic energy to hold something back when the re-looking at it, although the pain is very intense, it's very short. And that starts to then become an adaptive scenario, which then maybe in a situation like mine, I would have my favorite nanny show up at the site of me being in the hospital, feeling out of control. Now, did this really happen? No, it's my imagination. But my imagination starts to recreate the memory in a way that feels adaptive, that feels not less, not so scary, that feels empowered. And that is the brilliance of the practice because it's like people's brains do eyewitness the craziest things. Sometimes it's fantastical. You know, people will turn into, you know, monsters and kill their perpetrators in EMDR. And it's like, that's great. Are you verbally giving them cues as they do this? Yes. So honestly, I got to tell you, Richard, I don't do much. Once you, once you get somebody set up, yes, you're watching for them to dissociate, to become just, you know, if somebody starts to dissociate, that means I got to pull them back into the present. It's too much. 
really it's the client's brain does most of the work and you are checking in periodically to make sure that the information is still moving. Sometimes people get stuck, you know, sometimes they're like, I don't know, I just keep being here and nothing's getting better. And sometimes there's a, there's a blocked belief that you have to help them kind of assess, but yes, you're definitely there. You're guiding them. You're checking in with them. What are you noticing now? okay, I'm noticing that now I'm here and, you know, this person showed up and I'm making sure that the information is moving, that they're not just, you know, sort of stuck in a nightmare or that they haven't maybe checked out or that they, you know, whatever. And that's really, that's really it. And you go through this process until a person can talk about the memory. And it literally goes from being like a color movie that's like happening to you to like watching a black and white screen, you know, in the corner of a room where I can talk about, my trauma and it does not have an emotional, it doesn't emotionally affect me anymore. And that is the power of EMDR, but you don't do that work with somebody unless they are really capable of tolerating that intense pain that I sort of mentioned to you, you know, and can, and can bring themselves back down when they need to, so that they know that even if the pain is intense, if it becomes too intense, they can say, stop at any point in the, in the session, stop, this is too much. I need to take a break. I need to do some deep breathing. I need to go to a safe, calm place in my mind. I need to put this in my container. There's a lot of tools that you help people create as part of the EMDR training because you kind of train a client to be an EMDR client. Um, And I use a lot of those tools with people who maybe don't have, you know, a big T trauma because they're just, they're just helpful and helping us all kind of just deal with being a human that has a lot of different feelings. So is this um, is part of the theory underpinning it that the body retains trauma? And so I guess you're setting someone up in a situation where you know that it's going to come out of part of their body, but I guess you're connecting different parts of their body so the trauma maybe is disseminated throughout the body. Then they re-experience it, relive it in a more positive way. And I guess it, maybe it's going back into the body, but now with a different experience, an experience of success instead of, again, just trauma when the the person was younger and wasn't able to handle it. Now they are. Is that pretty much, that was a great way to describe it. Yep. Basically, honestly, the trauma just gets stored in our brains in a way that is not literally, it just keeps you at that age, whenever the trauma happened and it keeps you stuck in that age and that experience. And so this kind of pulls it out and brings it into like the now where you usually, you know, do have the skills to handle a situation. And that's why you have to make sure a person does really have those skills. And if they don't have those skills, you got to make sure that they have enough kind of emotional hygienic sort of skills to like, so when you do the EMDR, they're not just like back at five and they stayed at five, but because we were, you know, most, most of us, we're all evolving. Usually part of the skills are already kind of developmentally there. So are there particular traumas that this works for better than others? Or you know, I, I know what I probably know what you're going to say, but in terms of the person too, like what signs tell you they're ready or not ready? Okay. I think this is great for all trauma. It's great for what's called complex trauma. I work a lot. Most people I know have complex trauma, which means it wasn't just one thing that happened. And that was it, especially people with chaotic childhoods. They usually have complex trauma. So there's a lot of, of stuff to work through can take, I think I was an EMDR pretty much weekly for two years. I mean, it's not like 
going to happen right away. And if you need to take a break for a couple of weeks and just like have a regular therapy session, that's okay. How do I know somebody's ready? Again, I would have to say that they have to demonstrate the ability to regulate their emotions. They're not having panic attacks. They're not feeling out of control. They're able to function sort of in the world and their relationships and stuff like that. It's not a person who's having a major depressive episode. It's not a person who's actively using substances in a, you know, harmful way. This is somebody who's like, you know, you you have really, honestly, it really has to do with somebody who's emotionally, emotionally emitting some stability, which doesn't mean you don't, you know, get anxious sometimes if you have an anxiety disorder, which most people with trauma have some of that stuff going on. It's just that you're not, you're not so overwhelmed with emotion all the time that you're just trying to get through the day. You know, it's like, you got to look at a person and go, first, I need to make sure that you're functioning. Can you show up to work? Can you show up for your relationships? Are you brushing your hair? Are you, do you have a support system, right? You're, you're kind of assessing all of the different domains. And this needs to be a person who like, you know, is, is, is pretty much stable and functioning. Now that's in a private practice setting because I work with people who right, live on their own. If you're in a different setting, like a outpatient program, an intensive outpatient program, you're in an inpatient program, they will sometimes do an EMDR in those programs. One, EMDR is not only trauma reprocessing, it's also resourcing, which is helping a person gain coping skills. So just so you guys know, it's not always about trauma reprocessing. If you have a clinician who's like, I want to do some EMDR with you and do some resourcing, you know, you'd be like, I don't want to talk about my trauma. I'm not ready yet. They're like, no, no, we're not going to talk about your trauma. We're just going to use some of these tools. So it's not just right. There's, there's different kind of components to it, but you know, if you're in an inpatient program, there's a level of containment that even if your symptoms are really intense, they may say, well, because you're in a contained environment where you don't really have to function, right. You don't need to do anything. You're, we're here doing everything for you. We're going to go into the trauma because we can provide you with all of the support that you need as this is very difficult for you. So I think it depends on the setting, but I am a you know private practice therapist. So I don't work with people who require the level of care that a person would if they needed an intensive outpatient or an inpatient program. And I have had to refer clients that I work with to those programs. And then when they have maintain some kind of stability, then they can come back and work with me in my practice. Or I work with people while they're in treatment in collaboration with the team that they're working on, that they're working with. Right. Understood. Yeah. EMDR sounds like, right. I, I understand why you say you have to be ready for it because it sounds like a uh, something that you, I don't know who would look forward to it. I mean, they look forward to the end result, but certainly not the process. So it makes sense why you said that. Yes. And I was going to say too, another thing that you have to make sure a client can do is that a client can actually be in their body. I work with a lot of people, you know, most of us are really associated with our heads, especially because our culture is so, you know, we're very logic intellectual based and your feelings actually happen in your body. And if you've experienced trauma, a lot of the times you kind of disconnect from your body. And so I'll work with clients and they need to be able to be in their body and say, when I say, what are you, what, what are the sensations you're experiencing in your body? You know, they need to be able to say like a tightness in my chest and my hands are sweaty. And it could take me months just to help a person be able to feel safe enough in their body. So, you know, you're not doing any, any EMDR reprocessing trauma work 
in the sense, you know, all of this upfront work, I just want people to know is trauma work. Like you don't even need to talk about your trauma. You're still doing trauma work because if you're at a therapist's office, because you're having some kind of psychological issue, your trauma is there. The, The reason you're having the psychological stuff is because you have experienced trauma. So even if you talk about your job for six months, you're still doing trauma work because when you've experienced trauma, it impacts your entire psyche, your entire nervous system. Like you're not, not doing the work. So, you know, I think that a lot of people feel like super like, well, I've got to do the trauma work or I'm not really doing the work. And it's like, dude, you showed up to your therapy appointment you're doing the work. You don't want to talk about your trauma. And you told your therapist that you just did a major part of the work because who the hell wants to talk about their trauma? The number one, you know, one of the number one criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder is avoidance of the trauma. Like that's hello. That's why it comes out in weird ways, like chronic pain and intrusive thoughts and nightmares, because your, your, your psyche is like, I don't want to think about that. So it does everything so that you don't think about it, but it still exists. So you're haunted by it in these weird freaking ways. So just know that showing up to any of the therapeutic work, whatever that looks like for you, yoga, a group therapy process, a 12-step group for substance abuse, like all of it is connected to healing trauma. Are there any other or additional modalities in, in addition to EMDR that you employ quite a bit, you know, as a precursor to it or a, an adjuvant or a helper to it? Yeah. I mean, I'm very eclectic in my work. So sometimes I even forget all the theories I use because over the past 15 years, it's been so many things. I mean, I definitely use cognitive behavioral therapy to help people understand how their thoughts and their feelings and their behaviors connected. I definitely use, I'm very strength-based. So I definitely like to help clients identify you know, all of the things that they are doing well and all of their natural innate capacities to heal and to grow and to evolve and to, to take care of themselves. Um, I'm also trained in hypnosis. I use that periodically. I use a lot of breathing techniques with folks, especially people that need to work on kind of, you know, minimizing anxiety, but even just for handling regular stress, one of those breath techniques is called holotropic breath work, which is a very like kind of powerful sort of psychedelic kind of breath work experience. I used to teach a lot of those classes before the pandemic in treatment centers and all over Los Angeles. So yeah, I mean, I employ employ a, a whole host of things. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find you? Like where can you work with people? They live all over the US and the world. Like where should they go to get help? Yes. Okay. So, you know, because I'm a licensed therapist in the state of California, I'm only able to do psychotherapy with people who reside in the state of California. I can do EMDR and all types of my therapy virtually. So you don't need to live in Los Angeles, California. You can live anywhere in California. And the best thing for folks to do is to go to my website, which is youarecomplete.com. And there's a section there that says contact. And I actually just launched a membership community. And you'll see when you go to the website that the website is really geared toward that membership community. Because what I realized during the pandemic is that people are really seeking this type of information. I work holistically, which means I believe that 
we have the answers within. I believe that we have a mind, a body, and a spirit, and that all of those things need to be integrated for us to experience wellness. And so I do believe that there's, you know, a source, a higher power. I help people navigate, figuring out what that is. You don't have to be into that. A lot of my clients are like, Bianca, I don't want to talk about that spiritual stuff. Not a problem. It's something that I found very helpful in my own life and in my own healing. So if you want to learn about how you can utilize spiritual practices that are combined with a lot of therapeutic psychology practices, I've sort of created my own method of working. And the membership was was an attempt to try to help more people and also bring a community, mostly of women. I specialize in working with women in my membership program that want to create, you know, more want to really access more tools. So it's for folks that are, you know, pretty motivated, self-aware women ready to take it to the next level. So that's another way that you can work with me. And then I can work with people all over the world with what I call soul mentorship. And soul mentorship is pretty much just, it's not therapy, but what's great is that you get basically a coach, which is, it's more of a coaching thing. So I'm much more directive. We're usually working on one or two specific problems, but because I have tons of experience as a therapist, it's like, I can't separate, you know, who I am. So, you know, you, you get somebody who's got re- a lot of experience that also gets to help you on your journey. If you're trying to kind of work out one or two problems. And if I do assess that a person that's kind of doing mentorship with me needs therapy, then, you know, that's an, adjust- that's something else that we can help them find in their neighborhood. Well, very good. Bianca, thank you for coming on the podcast and uh, you have like a super interesting perspective. So I appreciate you oh, sharing. Well, so glad. I'm so glad. I didn't know this was going to be all about EMDR, but man, I am so passionate about it. And, you know, I've had so many people, not even just people that I've treated, but people I've known who have said it has really changed their lives. So to be a champion for that is a wonderful thing, is a wonderful thing. And I just think like, if I can leave people with one, you know, thing is that I really believe that everything is healable. I have worked with some of the most horrific stories children, adults, a lot of stuff. And I believe that the human spirit is capable of the unimaginable. And like inside of you, there's like a radiant, whole, complete essence that is always available to us. And so like, you know, you're not your diagnosis, you're not your trauma. You can heal from whatever it is, if you're willing to just, you know, show up find the right people to help you do it. I think that it's all of our right to find our bliss in this lifetime. Well, very good. Again, thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a nice invitation. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.